Before we get going here today with Rider Skills, I just want to mention that our friend Sam Manicom, you probably hear him on our Raw show, he's going to the U.S. on a bit of a presentation tour for August and September this year, 2022. The reason I'm mentioning this is because he hasn't been there for two and a half years. He's going to be at a number of places, including Overland Expo. So if I were you, I would make it to one of his presentations. Just, you know, try and work it out so you can, you can go out. Check out the details on his website. It's sam-manicom.com. I don't have a list of the places that he's going, but I know he's got a number of them on there. Anyway, sam-manicom.com. So if you get a chance, go see Sam. I love trip planning. I mean, it's a wonderful exercise. It builds excitement before you even get on the motorcycle. And it doesn't matter if you're planning around the world or for the weekend. Planning is just fun to do. We think about who's going, what does our motorcycle need, what are we going to pack, and of course, the route. The route's a big part of the excitement, pouring over maps or looking at GPS or looking on screen, whatever it is. It's just a lot of fun to do, whether you're following tracks in the mountains or planning some cross country, it doesn't matter. It's still fun to look at the possibilities. I think that's what's really exciting about it is the possibilities and it's sort of all open for us right there. But there's some really important details to consider that we often don't. They're easily overlooked, maybe in part because it's so difficult to assess, yet it could be the factor that makes the difference between getting you into trouble or avoiding it. And I'm talking about trouble. I'm not talking about adventure. You know, adventure happens to us when we're out there due to all kinds of conditions and things that happen. This is a simple question, but it usually raises another question like, well, how on earth do I do that? The question is, how do you know if your motorcycle, your gear, and your physical fitness is suitable for the desired route? In other words, when you choose a route and you've never been on it before, How do you know you can actually do it? How do you know your bike is up to the task? There's a lot of questions in here. Well, today on Rider Skills, we've got Clinton Smout to talk about that. How to figure out if your motorcycle, your gear, and your physical fitness is suitable for your desired route. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Sean Thomas. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Hello, it's Clinton Smote. I'm from Barrie, Ontario, Canada, and I'm a riding instructor. Clinton, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm doing very well. We're, we're middle of the summer here now at this recording, and you've just once again returned from another amazing adventure. And where was that? Uh, Colorado. You did the Colorado BDR? Yes. It's a commercial trip and you're, you're riding sweep for the commercial trip. That's right. It's a, that company called dual sport plus in Brantford and they own a bike shop, but they organize trips for participants. So they will transport your motorcycle to the location to save you riding it. Then you arrange your air transportation. We meet at a specified time. And then they provide maps and GPS coordinates of the proposed route. And then if you decide to venture off that route, then you're kind of on your own. We can't help you in a sweep capacity with, you know, maintenance if something breaks or the sweep truck to take your bike out and you take the spare bike. So how does that work then? So at the end of the day, if if they don't show up, what do you do? Well, we've luckily, especially in Colorado, there's pretty good cell service. And we also carry two 
of the InReach satellite phones, but there's a good way to contact us and we'll do our best to help you. But if you decide, you know what, I just want my bike transported, I'm going to do my own thing. Oh, I see. Then you kind of sign off that you're doing your own thing. There isn't any support. Right. So you as a sweep rider on this trip, what what are you doing? What's your day look like? Um, I just go over the bikes in the morning, have a quick look, make sure tires are adequate and everything's okay. Um, if anybody does want some little tutelage, some tips, I have an idea on most of the trips what we're going to experience that day. And if someone hasn't ridden a lot of off-road, I'm there for support at the back. Because usually the less skilled people tend to be at the back of a group. And those that are more experienced with adventure riding, are, they leave early and perhaps ride a little bit faster pace. So for you, when you show up to the group, when you catch up to them, for instance, is it like you riding up to chaos or is it riding up to a bunch of people who have stopped at an obstacle and saying, let's wait for Clinton? Uh, both. Uh. Uh, on this particular trip, there was two riders who probably shouldn't have tried the extreme passes. Very competent riders on the pavement, adequately skilled on gravel, flat roads, but once we got into the mountains and they were trying to go up and over and then back down the other side of mountains, there's some degree of difficulty that was just too much for them. And the one gentleman had watched every YouTube video of all the big historic passes that adventure riders attempt. And he said the videos didn't properly illustrate how difficult it was once he got up there mm, and you know altitude sickness and the degree of severity of the rocky trail so you really have to zig and zag picking a line because it's just too rocky to go straight up well, we'll talk about the colorado bdr what does it look like it's incredible i think engineers historically when they make roads around land that has rivers crisscrossing them or mountains sticking up, the roads have to be really curvy. And I was amazed at how good condition the pavement was. And it was almost like Deal's Gap, Tail of the Dragon type corners, but it went for hundreds and hundreds of miles than the length of the Tail of the Dragon. So I'd rather go back there than I would to the dragon in Tennessee, just because the roads were so spectacular. And how and about the BDR road itself? Uh, well, what Clint McBride did is researched it three years ago and sold the trip, but then it was canceled two years in a row for COVID. Oh, but right. he, he poured over a lot of topographical maps. He talked to riders that had ridden it, and he also watched a lot of videos then armed with kind of a basic idea of a route, he traveled to Colorado with another gentleman and they rode the proposed route and made a few changes to what they thought they would do on paper once they actually got to Colorado. So we did far more than just the BDR route. We started in Denver. Uh, we drove about 40 miles till we could hit gravel. And there was tons of riding that wasn't specifically the backcountry discovery route. It was just beautiful roads that Clint had found, both gravel and paved. Nice. So the technical sections, talk about those. Ooh, they were really fun. Like how, how, like when you say that, what, what sort of, like on your skill level and you being an obviously very experienced, very advanced rider, where was it? Um, there was a couple I didn't get to attempt because I was at the back and offering support. I helped one gentleman that got up maybe 8,000 feet and extremely difficult rocky trails, a little bit of water and lots of ruts. And at that height, he was shaking so badly, he realized, you know, this is just too dangerous for my skill sets. Mm. So we turned his bike around and took it back down 
past some of the ugly stuff, he'd made it up. Because most people find going downhill extremely steep angles harder than going uphill. It, it just psychologically, you don't want to go over the bars and have your bike chase you. So uh, Clint and I moved his bike down to where it was a little easier. And then I led him down the rest of the way. And we kind of went around the mountain by pavement rather than go over it. So I didn't get to attempt um, the really hard passes. And I'm curious if I would have been able to do it because three of the gentlemen that did it, uh, two of them really struggled. They de- needed the help of the two other riders to get their bike over the really steep stuff. So I don't think I would have been able to do it. But I won't know. We're going to go back next year, so maybe I'll be able to give it a try. So, so this is real serious riding. You have to have a Definitely. very high skill level to tackle this. Yes. And I was riding a, a pretty heavy bike. We got some pretty funny looks. Most participants on the BDR were on pretty small 250, 350 enduro bikes, a lot of side-by-sides and ATVs. So when they saw a 1250 BMW coming up the hill with I've got bags on it and a clothing and a tank bag. It's quite a behemoth to be going almost straight up. And I got some very funny looks like, are you lost? What are you doing here? (laughs) Did you you do Black Bear Pass? Uh, Some people did, but I didn't. Oh, and that's that's the one way, right? Yes. Yeah, because I can remember, this is like 33 years ago, our honeymoon. We went there in our four-wheel drive, had a four-wheel drive Toyota pickup at the time. And I can remember going along that trail and, and reading that it was it was supposed to be, the, the reason we went there, because it was supposed to be the toughest trail there is. And as we're going along, people are looking at us and they're going the other way. And I'm thinking, this is not, this can't be bad at all because people are coming the other way. And I may have told you this before, but as we got up a little bit further, I heard there's a bunch of people stopped at one spot. And when we passed them, trying to ignore them all, I could hear people saying stuff like, oh, they're going, they're actually going. And it's like, what do you mean they're going? And I realized that at that point, no one was coming the other way. Everyone was turning around there (laughs) at that spot. And when you get up there and look down, it's kind of, in, well, it's, it's extremely impressive to say the least, just how steep and how far down the valley is as you go down this. I mean, it's pretty treacherous. Yes. No room for error. Yeah, the degree of difficulty on two wheels was pretty extreme on maybe 10% of it. And then doable, if you had some good off-road skills on a big bike, it was doable. Mm. Uh, most of the 16 participants got over things like Cinnamon Pass and Hagerman's Pass. They're they're pretty steep. They're pretty rocky, loose terrain. But with, you know, some experience, you could do it. But uh, as I said, two of the participants really shouldn't have attempted it. And when they did, they kind of froze and decided they couldn't go any further so it was handy for them to have some support to get their bike back down because it's not something you could walk your bike back down. Mm-hmm. And the added challenge is, you know, anything above 10,000 feet, the oxygen percentage in the air is pretty thin. And that's tough on the body if you've got to, you know, wrestle your bike around or lift it up after a fall. Mm, yeah, it's, right. It's absolutely exhausting. I was pretty tired each night because I'd have to take my bike up or down and then go help someone. So that was quite a bit of walking at very steep angles. Mm-hmm. And uh, my body was saying, what are you doing, you moron? It's 11,000 feet and you're 63. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you then, so you said your adventure bike was big. You were getting looks at the bike you're riding. Next year, when you go back, would would you choose the same bike? I think I would because I'd really like to see if I could do it on the more challenging big bike. But I think if I was going by myself and I wanted to ensure that I could do everything, I might take a 750 or an 850, just something a little lighter. Mm -hmm. But but I'd ensure that it was fuel injection. 
we had uh, one gentleman had a really nice XR650 Honda. And of course, it was the only carbureted bike of the group. And it really struggled when it got up high because the jetting was stock, which was perfectly good at sea level. But as you go higher up, the bike needs the same volume of air, but there's less oxygen in the air. So that translates into the bike is running extremely rich. It's getting too much gas for the percentage of oxygen that is available. So it runs horribly and hardly any horsepower. So he really struggled. Amazing rider because he kind of just massaged this XR650 that wasn't getting enough oxygen (laughs) up to the top of the mountains. So I think, you know, if you really wanted pure performance, you would have had to have had smaller main jets for the carburetor when we got really high up. But then it runs like crap when you're back down at the other side of the mountain. So I think if I had a, yeah, it was, I was just going to say, if I had to recommend to anyone, um, you're going to struggle a little more with a carbureted bike and you'll be troubled by the lack of performance. Mm. Where a computer fuel-injected bike can adjust it as you change altitude, you still lose a little bit of power, but it's not as noticeable. It makes us think about that argument, you know, for riding a bike that's simple, the carburetor, that you can always fix, as opposed to the electronic bike that, if anything ever goes wrong with the electronics, you're stuck. But in this case, like probably 99.9% of the time, you'd be ahead riding the electronic bike. Absolutely. Yeah. Modern is better. (laughs) All this talk about bikes brings us to what we're actually talking about today. And what it is, is how determined if the adventure route that you're choosing, like what you guys have just done, is really doable for your bike, your riding experience, skill, and I guess your fitness level too. So um, what's the first thing you do? Where do we start with that? Yeah, it's like, what is the definition of an adventure bike? And I've met people who have stopped by the school. They're from another land, another country, and they're on a Honda CT70 scooter. You know, it's panniered out, great big tank bags. They have a knapsack and they're crossing Canada at 70 kilometers an hour. And you think, wow, that really is an adventure would I want to do it? Not in your life. I love the CT70 for popping around the neighborhood, perhaps, but not traversing a country. But, it, it, you know, if you could look up a defined description of an adventure bike, it would probably have a better suspension, higher ground clearance, an engine guard, skid plate, fork seal protection, you know, a stronger handlebars, it should have some kind of lever protection and a bark buster of some kind. It should have the capability to carry a bigger load than just the rider, you know, side luggage or soft luggage, things like that. I also think it should have, for my personal demands, got to have pretty good fuel range for the far out places I go I couldn't get by with a 200 kilometer you know 140 mile range tank that's useless to me Mm -hmm. so there's dozens of attributes of a good adventure bike but I think it's a personal decision so, so what you're talking about here is, is you're, you're saying that, um, that what we're talking about, that what we're going to describe here and what you're going to talk about as far as choosing, making sure that your bike can do the route is a, dare I use the word sensible choice, <laughs> because yes, you can do it on bizarre things, but we're talking about something that's going to be a suitable bike for it. Yes. You know, they recreate the cannonball run. I think it's annual and that's like a hundred year old attempt to crossing the United States, you know, California to New York. Mm -hmm. And they did it when there was virtually no pavement. And many of the states 
at that time didn't even have what we would think of as a proper gravel road. And it was done on like a 1918 Indian single cylinder spark advance, you know, virtually no suspension. That was truly an adventure, a successful one, but I wouldn't want to do it. Well, I don't know. You're about to take an adventure bike back to where you said a smaller bike would do better next year. I think you would <laughs> ride that, that, that single cylinder. I'd try it for Man, fun. Yeah, I think you would. <laughs> yep. We're going to take just a quick break. I've got a couple of things I want to tell you about. But when we come back, Clinton's got a great story about something terrible he did to a customer's bike. And he's the instructor. Stay with us. While summer is flying by, we're in August already for 2022. You want to do something worthwhile to really mark the summer for you. Overland Expo. Overland Expo is huge now. Huge. And they are doing an incredible job. Overland Expo Mountain is coming up August 26th through 28th in a beautiful location. Well worth the ride, even if you're coming a long distance. Loveland, Colorado at the ranch. Overland Expo is the premier overlanding event series in the world. They say that no other no other event offers a scope of classes taught by world-leading experts alongside a professional-level trade show. They bring together all the camping, the vehicle, the motorcycle equipment, everything you need to get outfitted, get trained, get inspired, and get going. They've got over 175 specialized classes, slideshows, demo activities, and presentations 175. That, like, that's amazing. And get this, over 250 exhibitors all in one place, all at one time, filled with like-minded people, people that love overland travel. And there are tons of motorcycle-specific things for you to do, see, and experience. Ride your bike there, camp for the weekend, and enjoy some just amazing stuff when it comes to overlanding and adventure riding. Everything needs to be booked in advance. So go to their website, overlandexpo.com. Click on Overland Expo Mountain, that's for August 26th through 28th at Loveland, Colorado at the ranch and uh, get your tickets and then make it a make it a pilgrimage, you know, select a route and do something along the way, do something on the way back. I mean, it would just be an amazing setup. Anyway, Overland Expo, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Here, I've got a question for you. Have you ever owned a cold weather winter coat that you would also wear in hot summer weather? I didn't think so. Either have I. Why would you? That's crazy. But I do wear the best cold weather socks that I've ever tried in my summer riding boots. Pearly's Possum Socks. Now, why would I wear thick, soft, cold weather socks in the summer? Because Pearly's Possum Socks are made up of a blend of two amazing natural materials, merino wool and possum fur. And the result is a sock that is soft, comfortable, it prevents chafing in my boots, and it wicks away moisture from my foot or feet, if you wear them on both feet, which I do, which tends to happen in the summer, of course, because when it's hot out, your feet tend to sweat in motorcycle boots. But no matter what happens on that hot summer day with my Pearly's Possum socks on, when I pull my feet out, they never stink. They don't feel wet and my feet are not chafed. My feet aren't even sore. So that's why I wear the best cold weather socks that I've ever tried in the summer. Now, when the temperature drops, the best way to keep my feet warm are, of course, Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is a website. Get yourself a pair. I have heard from loads of people who've got them, and everyone is blown away by them. Don't forget to mention Adventure Rider Radio when you're dealing with them. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. But um, I remember we made it to the top of the pass, including the least experienced gentleman. And he's a fantastic guy. He started riding a motorcycle in 2015, so not hugely experienced. He bought a Honda 500. Then his second bike, which he still owns, is a DCT Africa Twin. And he's traveled tremendous distances on it. I think there's 80,000 kilometers, 50,000 miles. So he ventures off on big trips. And he's accompanied us to the Yukon. I think he's gone four times, including riding the bike out there and back by himself. So he came to Colorado, but the steepness of the hills and the degree of difficulty of the rocky terrain was the most challenging for him. But he actually made it up all the passes, uh, a big drop off with a hole and mud and water in it. 
freaked him out a little. So I said, no problem at all. I'll take your bike across. And I didn't realize the traction control was still on because if you shut the bike off and restart it. <laughs> so I get on this DCT, which I've ridden quite a bit over the years. And I gave, I hit the throttle to jump it up this bank. And of course, the with the traction control on, I just fell over like, do you remember the show Laughing? And there's a guy in a, on a tricycle and he just tips over. No. Well, I just look like an old guy on a bicycle tipping over. So <laughs> the Africa twin landed beside me and the highest point of the bike was the wheels. Mm. And I broke his mirror. Oh, no. So I took the mirror off of my bike so that he would have two mirrors. What's embarrassing about that is when you try and tell him it's because the traction control was on, he's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> that's what everyone else said. Yeah, on the we all got these excuses. Oh, that's, I forgot to do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I did take a picture of it and posted it in, in, we had an app for all the participants of the tour, which was a great way if a group is out touring because those apps seem to get there faster than emails or certainly phone calls, and everybody who's in the that app will receive it. So things like, hey guys, we've pushed dinner back an hour at the restaurant because some people are still straggling in now and we want to give them time to have a shower and relax. Mm. So you didn't have to contact each person. It went out as a group. So I sent the picture of the Africa twin upside down and made sure they knew it wasn't poor James who owned the bike. It was Clinton <laughs> who broke the mirror. That was just Clinton uh, helping out. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Big help. I'll do it myself. Thanks. Was that WhatsApp? <laughs> Is that the app you used? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, WhatsApp. Oh, okay, well, that's good. Well, okay, so so back to the the, the yes. adventure bike. So when we're talking about, you know, checking out whatever route we're going to do and considering what our, whether our bike can handle it, I guess we'll, we'll do the bike first. Yeah, you describe what you consider to be an adventure bike. Is is that what you're describing would work for everyone or, or talk more about that? Yeah, uh, to me, it has to have an optional tire. What comes stock with 99% of adventure bikes is an 80-20. So if your proposed route has a lot of loose gravel or the possibility of mud, uh, water crossings, it's going to be a little more exciting with that 80-20 tire. So I would recommend you switch to a good, soft 50-50 tire. Now, I know you're being tongue-in-cheek when you're saying, that, you know, a little more exciting. Really, it, for most of us, it, it's not doable, is it? No, it could be downright dangerous. Mm -hmm. If you lose traction at the in, inopportune time, it just, it's a crash. So the risk for the average skilled rider goes up dramatically simply because they're going to lose traction sooner with a stock tire. Mm -hmm. And um, the suspension is so important in some of these BDRs, for instance, Colorado, they're not paved golf cart trails that go up over a mountain. It's unbelievably rocky, absolutely hammering the suspension. And that was the biggest damage to the fleet of bikes the 16 people had. One gentleman, uh, the rear shock on a big adventure bike actually broke at the bottom where the bolt grew the bottom of the shock to mount it to the swinging arm. That part broke off. The eyelet itself? Yes. So we thought of taking it off and finding a machine shop with a good welder. But we were going to do that. And then the gentleman who owned the bike thought, you know what, there is a spare bike I can use. It would be in the back of his mind, you know, would that weld hold? Or if it would break off again, would that cause a serious crash? So I think he was wise that we put it on the truck and it rode the truck for the rest of the trip. About mm. three days. And then he rode someone else's bike, like the spare bike. Yeah. Um, the beauty of going with an organized trip like this, a lot of those companies will tow a spare bike on a trailer or in a van 
for us, we had a rental truck and we put the spare bike in there. So is that a rental bike at that point? Well, like when he, does he have to rent that bike? No, it's actually part of, um, with the way that Clint McBride does it, that's part of the tour expense that you would pay for. Like it's um, insurance kind of. It is. Same with you don't pay extra just because we have satellite phones and and me at the back to try to help out if you have any difficulties. That's all kind of included in the cost, which is a real benefit if you're going the opposite of just going by yourself. Heaven forbid, I really think people should ride. If you're doing hard stuff, there should be a buddy system, at least two people. Yeah. Yeah, it's just too easy to have a problem that that hangs you up. So you were talking about suspension. Yeah. And one thing we do on these trips, uh, especially for the Yukon, some of the mud or gravel that turns into mud, for instance, the Dempster Highway, when it's wet, they spray the gravel with calcium chloride and it helps compact it when it's dry and diminishes dust. But when it's wet, it's unbelievably slippery, almost impassable in some sections. And this mud, I think we've talked about it before, it will harden on the chrome slider of your front forks, whether they're upside down or conventional. So Clint found these zippered fork skins, they're called. And I think the technology came out of trials riding where we're always going through deep water and mud. Because what happens when the mud solidifies around the chrome part of your fork, when you hit bumps, this really hard mud turns into almost concrete. Mm -hmm. And as your fork goes up and down, it rips and tears the seal that is holding the fork oil into the bottom or top of the fork. And now you have oil running down the fork leg, possibly onto your brake components, which mm. is very exciting. And then, and and that, then no suspension yeah. or no uh, damping of the front. Yes. Ultimately. So we had two gentlemen on this past trip uh, that had leaky forks, just one side, one fork. So what I tried to do is I pulled the dust cover off at the bottom of the fork and I used a fork seal cleaner of course, I forgot mine at home, so I made one out of a plastic cup. I just cut it in a nice rounded shape, and you stick that up into the fork seal, and with contact cleaner or brake cleaner, you rotate this cleaning tool to see if I could get any grit out of it that may have been allowing the oil, and despite cleaning it, they still leaked which meant the fork seals were torn. Right. And you're trying to get any sort of grains of debris that are right on the seal lip. Yes. Mm. And so when you use brake cleaner or contact cleaner, the chemical component of it makes the seal swell. So it looks like, oh man, you're a hero. You fixed it. And no, you didn't. As soon as it dries out, it leaks again. So that was two people who had the benefit of fork oil only in one of their front forks, so diminished suspension. Another gentleman with a BMW, the pounding that that bike took, and it had sat for quite a while before use, but once it got it out into the real heavy rocky trails, the pounding blew a seal in the front shock, so it was leaking. So he had diminished smooth suspension. And then, of course, the one I mentioned where the pivot at the bottom where the bolt goes through actually broke on a big bike. Mm. So what else as far as the bike goes itself? Um, The things that we've talked about before, if you're riding a little more extreme adventure riding, you're probably going to be standing up a lot more than pavement riding so with if you are standing up a lot more a lot of adventure bikes come with a finger width stock foot peg 
it may have rubber inserts that you can pull out or unscrew and it exposes a very thin peg and standing up all day on that or even you know for half an hour that really ends up hurting your foot so i think a a good addition to an adventure bike is a wide foot peg i know you use ims i have them on some bikes as well Mm -hmm. and it just spreads the load out kind of like a hoof rather than a high heel. Right. That's a really good way of saying it. Yeah, that's really good. Okay. So the bike would, would be, I mean, it's, it's typical of what we see of an adventure bike. Are there any things you would avoid when looking at an adventure bike? Let's say, let's say they haven't chosen their bike yet for, for the route, but, but for an adventure bike in general, is there anything you would avoid, a type of bike or, or a type of suspension or anything like that? Yeah. Um, one thing that... The gentleman proved he shouldn't have had on is he was trying to do these really hard passes with a top case. So that if you're envisioned, you're stopped or trying to get on your bike when it's at a steep angle, the front tires a couple feet higher than the rear. It compounds the mount and dismount if you can't swing your leg over. And that proved problematic and caused quite a few tip overs at a stop because it was hard to get on. It seems strange to have a, have a top box when you're only going on day trips on that particular yeah, trip. Uh, that's what I suggested. Let's put that in the truck. Whatever's in there, you can pack in your saddlebags or maybe don't bring because mm-hmm. we're there for support anyway. You don't need all those things. And that's what they decided to do. Oh. But little things like I mentioned, the bike tipping over. If it crashes and you don't have a bark buster, then you break a lever off. Now what are you going to do with no clutch lever or no front brake left? Mm -hmm. Try going down a steep mountain pass with no front brake. It would be very exciting. And and not to mention that, if you go down and and don't pull your hand back with no uh, bark buster or hand guard on there, that's your fingers getting crushed. Yeah, exactly. All those piano lessons your mom paid for. (laughs) Out the window. How do you determine then, if you've got this adventure bike, if the route or if the bike is suitable to the route or vice versa? Yeah, I think with some research, most historic passes that are the mecca, I've got to go there because, oh my God, I've heard engineers pass is really tough. Look at the video If you see everybody else on a 1200 BMW and they're going up and over, it it stands to reason that you might be able to do it because the bike certainly can. But if everybody's on a 250 with no headlight on it, you're probably going to have a little more challenge on a big, heavy adventure bike. Right. That's really good. I like that. Yeah, because basically you're just checking for your bike to see if other people have done it. It's simple yeah. enough. And I mean, that's the world today where there's videos on everything, right? So yeah, that, oh that my makes goodness. perfect sense. Yeah, definitely. And so I think looking at the overall terrain, like this particular trip was seven or eight days long. We only did 2000 kilometers. So 1200 miles, 1300 miles mm-hmm. in eight days because so much of it was off road and steep. So did I really need a 1250? I certainly didn't need it for fuel range or carrying capacity because it was short days, tough days, but short. Mm -hmm. So I could have done it on a 650 single BMW quite adequately. But I really wanted the features on the 1250. For instance, the heated seat. I got mocked so much by the other riders because I was the only bike that had a heated seat until um, the change in, and that's something that I wouldn't even ride a bike without heated grips down there, because we were at the bottom of Pikes Peak, which I'm sure you've heard of or been on, and it was 37 degrees Celsius. As we went up to the top, 11,000, almost 12,000 feet, It was 10 degrees Celsius, freezing cold and raining. Mm. And without heated grips, people were literally shaking 
up top because they were really hot at the bottom. All the vents were open. Rain gear was off. And then you can't really pull over. There's actually signs that say, do not stop at the side of the road because it's uh, no guardrails. It's a steep drop off. And they don't want people stopping to take pictures and blocking heavy traffic. So there wasn't the opportunity to stop, do up your vents, put a raincoat on. So when people got to the top, even though they mocked me, I let them sit on my bike and warm up a little. <clears throat> <laughs> okay, so so that's the considering uh, the route in your bike, which that's great. That, that's a, a great way to do it. How about riding experience? How do you know if you have the riding experience or skill to handle that route? And because you said yourself that somebody watched all the videos on the route that you guys did and still felt they were, they were ill-prepared for the, the uh, technical aspects of or the difficulty of the, of the trail. Yeah, James was very philosophical about it. He said if he could have appreciated the de- degree of difficulty that he encountered if he knew that it was going to be that hard, he never would have tried it. But because he was successful, despite me breaking his mirror when I dropped his bike, he did get his bike over all the passes that he attempted. He feels elated and extremely good about, you know, facing those challenges and beating them. But I don't think, and he would agree, he couldn't have done that without support. Mm. His skill levels were not up to the task. The bike certainly had the capability to do it, but his riding experience wasn't such that he could comfortably do it by himself. Without me there helping him, he freely admits there's no way he could have got over those passes. So how do you know that? How, like, how can you yeah. judge it from, from looking at it on a video or, or something like that where you can't really determine just how difficult it is? And particularly if you're, if you're riding by yourself, wow. If you're even riding with just one other person, the whole idea of turning around and heading out when you find you're in over your head, I mean, really, you'd rather do it the other way around, no in advance. Absolutely. But it's like anything we do on an adventure bike, deep sand. You can't look at it and see and prejudge if you're going to do it, if you don't have a lot of experience. Uh, you face a water crossing. You don't know if you can do it till you get in there. Mm-hmm. And it's only confidence that you gained with repetitive success in doing any of these things, like a big climb over a pass or a deep, long water crossing. There's certain skill sets that will help you clutch control, momentum on the hill, being able to zig and zag around the rocks with peg steering, and then going down, you know, get your butt back, use the engine brake, one finger brake, all that, if you can do it, you've got a much better shot of success. But I think there's no way of really knowing if you can do it or not, unless you try it. But sometimes it's too late once you're stuck in there. Well, let me run this past you. One of my thought processes is when I, when I look at something and I can't immediately pick my route or figure out what I'm going to do, I think I might be over my head. And at that point, I find that I end up using momentum more than anything. Well, I know what I'll do. <laughs> Just get gas on the it. gas, right? <laughs> but I mean, but yeah. does that give you an indication that maybe, yeah, this, this is too much for you? Yes. I think that little voice in our head, sometimes um, that lack of confidence that your brain and that voice is trying to tell you, you know, this might be too much. And many instructors will say that women, that voice is stronger than men. Men are more likely with testosterone to attempt it. Yeah, let's give her, let's try it. When they probably shouldn't. And the more sensible approach, and I'm generalizing, but the more sensible approach is to be far more cautious than just charging ahead. One of my kind of little quips and jokes is always let your friend go first. And there's some real value in that, in watching their success. And if you know their riding skills compared to yours, that will tell you a lot of whether you're going to fall over. Well, and so in other words, if you're taking Clinton's advice and you listen to the show, don't tell your buddy you listen to the show. 
your friend because, you know, they're going to get the same advice, right? They're going to want you to go yeah. first. It makes sense. And your advice is very popular. I can't tell you how many times I hear this from people who always make a oh. comment of, uh, take Clinton's advice, send your friend first. <laughs> you know, it's, it's good yeah, advice. Some, it's sound. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes it needs a little psychology. You could say, now, Jim, you're far more experienced at this water stuff. Would you <laughs> mind going first? Yeah, that's and nice. Most men will fall for that. Yeah. I don't know. If you're telling me that, I'm not, I'm not going to fall for it. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So the other thing you mentioned here was, was um, fitness, fitness level. So how do we know? I mean, you just mentioned this trip was, was very demanding physically. How do you yes. know? I mean, there's a certain precaution you can do by getting into some sort of level of fitness, but how do you know if you have the fitness level for something and, and what happens if you don't? Well, what happened with James is... He'd be a little younger than me, but from previous sports, etc., he needs knee replacements. So I think he's scheduled for it, but he has a great deal of difficulty walking. Now, now James is the guy with the, the Honda Africa Twin. Twin. He broke the mirror, yes, right? Okay. I broke his mirror. And he still bought me a root beer that night. Oh, he still likes you. In gratitude of helping him get over the past. So I said, <laughs> nobody's ever thanked me with a gift when I crashed their bike <laughs> before. But anyway, he does need knee replacement surgery, which isn't scheduled because he's still pretty young. And I'm told most surgeons hesitate doing it because apparently the knee only lasts about 10 years, the, the new knee. Yeah, so he... So anyway, he struggles with walking to the point where, you know, we took the same flight home. I flagged down one of the electric golf carts at the Toronto airport because we had a long way to walk without the moving sidewalks and it would have been excruciating for him. Mm -hmm. So that was another reason because of his knee challenges he probably shouldn't have tried those really steep, hard passes alone. Because when I did ride his bike through some sections, it took him a long, painful time to get to where I had taken his bike. Mm. So uh, it's not that he's unfit, but his knees are not in the shape he wished they were. Right. That's just mobility. And that, that'll make a difference too, if you're riding by yourself or even with fewer people, as far as rescuing your bike, if something goes wrong. Yeah. Now from my own fitness level, um, I struggled breathing way up high, you know, 11,000 feet. When I would ride my bike up, walk back down, ride a customer's bike back up. And that I couldn't do as if it was flat ground. I had to take time to catch my breath. Uh, I did have a backup. I had my nitroglycerin from having a heart attack in 2013. I always carry a, it's a liquid form now. And I thought, is this going to be the first time when I can't catch my breath? And I'm going to need a little nitro shot to power me back up the hill. But I still haven't used it. I've gone through a few bottles because they expire. But I have that backup in case physically I can't do it. So you just had COVID too. You sort of recovered for COVID not long ago. Did that have any effect on it? That's true. Yeah, I think it did in the level of recovery when there's a loss of breath. I think COVID has affected a lot of people's lungs Mm -hmm. more more than it has mine. Uh, I haven't started playing soccer yet again because the team hasn't bounced back yet, but I do want to, and I'll be curious to see if I have the same level. But eventually, I know that age and my body wearing out, is, which is completely normal, it's going to make the decision that I can't do this extreme adventure riding. I'll have to do easier challenges. Like the Yukon, there is no real steep, ugly hills. It's just long gravel roads, sometimes mud, sometimes water. But Colorado was a much, much higher degree of difficulty for the riders. Mm -hmm. You'll be uh, relegated to just doing mall parking lots. Yes, it could be. (laughs) (laughs) As long as I could ride. That's what I was going to say. As long as you're on the two wheels, that'll that'll probably make you happy anyway. 
So, yeah. um, what, what, so how is somebody going to uh, assess their fitness level? Well, a doctor visit before getting a workup. I have my uh, tractor trailer driver's license, an A license in Ontario. So because I've had a heart attack and it's on record, I have to have a complete full physical stress test annually. Annually? Oh. Yes. Because, you know, you crash your pickup truck, probably not going to go through the guardrail. But somebody has a heart attack in a big rig. Mm-hmm. It's going to it's going to affect a lot more vehicles than just their own. Right. So like prudent, but I appreciate having that full workup because it's given me the confidence that, you know, I'm still okay. I could do the stress test. And what that tests is a real physical demand and how quickly your heart and cardiovascular system recovers back to normal. And if it takes you half an hour and you're still huffing and puffing or need a shot of nitrogen, you shouldn't do the Colorado BDR. I think a doctor could give you good advice on that. Okay, so that's that's you know you're getting into heart and things like that, which you're going to have to visit a doctor and have to go through some uh, these stress tests and things to really get a picture of where they can do you know the the electronic testing etc of your body. But what about you as far as physical fitness? Like for instance, the Colorado BDR that you just did to do that, would you tell somebody that they would have to be comfortable or or physically fit to be able to stand on their pegs for this long, or would there would there be some some sort of um, parameters that you would set up and say, look, you should be able to do this no problem at all to even consider doing this. Yeah. And I think that also factors in the bike choice. Uh, For instance, there was one section that was incredibly deep sand. It had been all chopped up by multiple tire use, side-by-sides, ATV, motocross bikes, and maybe a few adventure bikes. So I rode James's bike through to the other end, maybe 100 yards, 100 meters roughly. And then I walked back and that had tired me out that ride in the walk back. So I probably wasn't, I should have rested a little bit, but I thought, you know, I'm, I teach how to ride sand, get out of the way. I can do this. And I promptly lost the front end and the bike tipped over very slow speeds. I just stepped off it. But then because I'm the sweep rider, there's uh, nobody coming up behind Clinton to help them. So we have a system that we teach with your horn you know, a long beep, a short beep, and another long means, hey, I need help. So this young guy, Tyler, came flying back on his 690 KTM. It was as if there was no sand there. And he helped me lift the bike. Had he not come, I would have had to have taken the saddlebags and my tank bag off. And then I'm pretty sure I could have lifted it. Because in the deep sand, as you're trying to lift the front tire sliding, so it's hard for it the tire to get purchase for you to elevate it and angle it up. Mm-hmm. So it compounds the difficulty uh, lifting a big heavy bike. So thank goodness we had that system. But I would also promote that people practice a buddy system. So you shouldn't ride alone, even when you're out in groups. And what we ask people to do is you don't have to stay as a great big pack, but pick a two, three, four people that have similar interests in touring as you do. If you're the photo taker that stops every 15 minutes for another mountain view, you're really going to peeve off the person that wants to get going. It seems like they just got into third gear. Oh, my God, he's stopping again. Mm hmm. That's the wrong person for you to be traveling with. Or I've been on tours with people that every half an hour they pull over for a smoke. Drives me crazy. I want to get going. So most groups that I've been on, you'll find those people. And what we recommend is if you're standing up, lift your left mirror upwards a little. So a quick glance without bending your body in half while standing, will see the headlight of your buddy behind you. And then if you have to deviate from the trail, if the GPS or your knowledge tells you, okay, this is where I make a sharp left, 
don't take that left. Wait at the edge of the trail until you see that headlight and then turn. And that's a good way not to get lost and keep the group together. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good tip. What did you learn on this trip that you didn't know before you went? Uh, I, the, I have never ridden such rocky, steep trails before. So I was really impressed with all of the bikes, but the only one I could comment on was this 1250 BMW I had. And I've always known those big 1200s, 1250s to be tractors. They've got phenomenal torque, low-end torque, and it just walked up the steepness of the hill. I was really impressed. I didn't really have to clutch it at all. Mm -hmm. um, it just had oodles of power that even with loss of horsepower, I didn't really notice it. And I love a bike that's got great double disc front brakes that I can almost stop while going down with one finger brake pressure. Mm. So I was really impressed with what the bikes could do at that height, um, which shocked most of the other trail users when, you know, 15 bikes come charging up and down the other side. I didn't see any other adventure bikes up there. That, I wanted to ask you that. Oh, you didn't tell you. That's interesting. I've so got two quick things to tell you about. Well, when we come back, Clinton's going to tell another little story about um, a surprising and somewhat disappointing thing he discovered after conquering an incredible hill on the Colorado BDR. Stay with us. Who doesn't like a good story? And if it's a motorcycle leading you through some kind of adventure, even better. I know a guy, Mike Fitterling. Mike is a rider. He loves to ride. I mean, he finds excuses to head off for weeks at a time on his motorcycle. He's also a rider and an independent publisher. And a while back, he sort of melded his love of motorcycling and his fascination of great motorcycle stories into Road Dog Pub. Road Dog Pub is a publishing company that focuses on great motorcycle stories. Road Dog Pub now has a slew of great motorcycle books that are available in all fine bookstores or directly from Road Dog Pub at RoadDogPub.com. Now you're going to see authors like Zoe Cano, Jackie Ferno, Ron Davis, Kathleen Turner, Graham Field, and many more. There's a lot of great titles here. I've seen loads of them. RoadDogPub.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. RoadDogPub.com. There's almost an endless list of things that you can modify or add to your motorcycle, and I love that. But there's few that I would call true game changers. I mean those modifications or additions that make an undeniable positive change. Change that would be recognized by almost every rider that got on the bike. Changes that give you better control or usability. Like, like for instance, swapping out your street tires for knobby tires when you're riding dirt. That's a massive change. But another, although less obvious change, are your foot pegs. Changing out your stock foot pegs for a well-designed quality foot peg are one of those things that will make a massive difference in not only your ability to control your motorcycle, but also your comfort on long stretches of road. It's a modification that serious riders make to their motorcycles, even though few people will walk by and say, hey, I like your new foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs designed by leveraging over 45 years of experience in designing and manufacturing products for motorcycles. 45 years, actually over that. Race Quality Tough, designed specifically for adventure riding, made in the USA, warranted for life. IMS Products has the ADV-1 and ADV-2, which are large platforms for the adventure rider on down to the core enduro. IMSproducts.com is the website. Mention Adventure Rider Radio when you're dealing with them, please. IMSproducts.com. I didn't see any other adventure bikes up there. That, I wanted to ask you that. Oh, you didn't. Eh? Well, that's interesting. So it's no. not, uh, not a well-used route for, for adventure motorcycles. No, um, there was a lot of smaller bikes where people would trailer their 250, 350 to a jump off point where they could do a day trip. I think it's called hub and spoke. So at night you return to the hub where food and accommodation and fuel oh, yeah. is yeah. and then venture off on another spoke, another direction the next day. And in many parts of Colorado, there's small little towns that have catered to that philosophy 
where there's trucks and trailers everywhere you see with a side-by-side, an ATV, or a couple motocross bikes in. Uh, The odd adventure bike, but as I say, I didn't see them. But on the flip side, we were resting at the top of a big pass, and it was a tough climb. And as we were taking pictures and chatting, congratulating each other on what heroes we were to have attained this height, I heard engines coming, so I the couple of people were taking the whole trail. I said, oh, if you could, just move your bike quickly to the right. And a Suzuki Bandit 1200 came up with a rider with blue jeans, hiking boots, and a full-face street helmet and stock tires. I was absolutely shocked. <laughs> the Bandit 12, isn't that a, like, a, like, a, like a Harley sort of style bike? No, no, it's a sport touring bike from the early 2000s oh, I think so it is. I I had a 2001 fantastic long-legged motor but would never in my mind be my choice for taking up a mountain and here's this guy plugging along he stopped and chatted a bit I was just astonished then his buddy caught up he was on a stock 650 versus Kawasaki again street tires wow it, And they just had little knapsacks, no luggage, no tow rope, no tire repair. And they were up there having a riot. So So, it it kind of diminished our success, Jim. (laughs) It really impressed. And those guys were having the time of their life. They'd never done any of the BDR stuff before. But just, you know, saw it on a website and thought, hey, let's go try this. Any, any final thoughts yeah. on what we're talking about here today? Yeah, I think that people should uh, prepare as best they can. And then hopefully there's a backout. So if you've got your GPS and your maps, it's smart to see if there is. And they actually call them backout routes, I think. Backout so routes? Yeah. Okay. So many of these BDRs, if you want to travel them, if... Envision that you can't get up this pass. What are you going to do? How are you going to get to the hotel on the other side of the mountain? So have a plan B to take the road around, the paved road or gravel road, which we did once. We couldn't get. Uh, Chris and I decided, because he was shaking at the top and it was really freaking him out, we decided, no problem. Let's go back down the way we came. And we rode around the mountain. It was a long way. It was two and a half hours in the rain, but we did it safely. We're continuing on. Um, if you are sticking to plan A, that could have dire consequences. So I would always advise people, really research your routes. Don't blindly just follow the BDR route because it might be too difficult. Well, Clinton, that's great. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time as always. My pleasure, Jim. All the best. I was speaking with Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. His website is smartadventures.ca. Now, he's given us some great photos from the, the trip that he was talking about here, doing the Colorado BDR, all in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. If, you, if you're curious about the Colorado BDR in particular, you got to see these. But if you're curious about what Clinton looks like and what he does when he's on these trips, well, you got to see these pictures. Anyway, check out the show notes. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this and listening. And, I, you know, I'd like to thank all of the, the people, the contributors that we've had on here, including Clinton and all the other people we've had on the show over the years um, that's really made Adventure Rider Radio what it is. And just great to be associated with them and, uh, and have people like this incredible stories and wonderful information we get from from these people so thank you to everyone who has been on the show and contributed something to the show hey we're built on a model of some advertising and listener support um we need your support drop by our, our website adventureriderradio.com click on support anything ten dollars or more gets you an adventure rider radio sticker anything fifty dollars or more gets you a shout out on our raw show and then we would love it if you'd really consider being a patron supporter so that we could count on you each month. Anyway, check it out. Uh, just just take a few minutes and look at it uh, at the very least. AdventureRiderRadio.com forward slash support or just look for the support button. The other thing that would be great is if you could give us a five-star rating somewhere where you're finding your podcast to help other people find the show. That would really help out. So um, I would really appreciate that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin and I will talk to you next week. This is Scooter Chance Guy uh, coming to you from Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!